Consider the coaster. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to Irenacast. I'm your host, Jeff, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Alan. Hello. On the first and third Tuesday of every month, we bring to you our perspectives on theology and culture from a post-evangelical lens. Thank you for joining us for another conversation to provoke your progressive Christian imagination. This week, we have a three-person booth once again. We have with us a guest co-host, uh, Bonnie, from our Intersections episode. If you haven't listened to that, go to irenacast.com slash 113, and you can hear Bonnie and the rest of the Intersections crew uh, talking about their ministry over there, or up there, I guess, well, up there for me, over there for some of you who are listening, down there for others of you who are listening, but in Sacramento area, uh, and check that out again at irenacast.com slash 113. But Bonnie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be back. So, uh, I'm personally glad you're back, because you're a good friend. Oh, thanks, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> and again, listen to that episode one 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 three, and you'll understand that uh, Bonnie and her husband Raj and their friend Casey and Alan have a wonderful, amazing dynamic all together in some of the stuff that they're doing. So, uh, but I'm sure you'll you'll get that vibe as we we continue on with our episode. So this week we are going to be talking about poverty, and for our segment, we are going to be playing a good old fashioned round of probably our favorite game at this point, especially to do when we have brand new guests to get to know them a little bit more is uh, Jesus Juke. Uh, so yeah, so let's just get right into it. We really wanted to do this episode and we thought it'd be amazing to have Bonnie come on the episode for a lot of different reasons. But I'm going to throw to you, Alan, first. Why is this important? Why are we talking about that? And then, you know, obviously more importantly, why, why is Bonnie joining us for this particular episode? To be honest, this isn't a conversation that happens a lot in our culture, especially politically. You look at presidential debates and stuff before campaigns and you never hear the word poverty, even though it's a big part of our society. And so not only is it incumbent on us to speak about this stuff for a million different reasons, I wanted to talk about it specifically because Bonnie has led me into trouble. <laughs> she has uh, joined, I've joined her in some work for something called the Poor People's Campaign. And we'll get to that in a little bit about um, what we've done, something pretty big for me, but protesting poverty, talking about poverty. And I, I think just to begin Maybe we can talk a little bit about how poverty was spoken to us in our previous contexts. Uh, I know in my context, it's the pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of thing. I mean, I grew up in the mountains where it was an extremely conservative town and it was good to um, give to the poor, but you know, you didn't give them. <laughs> it was kind of a suspicious like giving kind of thing. And you didn't ask big questions about systems or bigger problems. You just kind of looked at it as, an individual problem. That person has a problem. That's why they're poor. It was, it was a means to a salvation end, right? It was never just here's help. It was always here's help because we really want you to say the sinner's prayer and be a part of it. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a whole nother level. I mean, that is. That, that, that's right. But that was um, never not connected, at least in my experience. Bonnie, how about you? Why is this? Why is this? Um, what, what has led you into the work that you've done with poverty? And why do you think it's such a crucial issue that we we talk about in Christian circles? Well, because Jesus, number one. Um, Good answer. But uh, yeah, I was listening to the way you're describing the way that you were taught in the evangelical fundamentalist tradition. And um, I remember I was teaching, I come from a Seventh-day Adventist um, background, and I was teaching school in a parochial school in that system. And um, we noticed in our community in Placerville that there were homeless people. 
And on the census in El Dorado County, when it was time to report, you know, all the demographics, they put zero on the line that said homeless for year after year after year. So there were no shelters, there were no services, there was nothing. So as a person of faith approaching my own community saying, hey, here's an issue, let's do something about it. And then and then there was like a, a protest against what we were trying to do. Trying When I say we, I mean um, a Bible study group, a group of us were meeting and, you know, we were convicted that this is what Jesus was calling us to do. And my pastor and other community leaders said, no, we can't do that because, you know, same things. We need to treat people with suspicion. You know, if if it's a poor person within our own community, then it's okay to help. But if it's somebody on the outside, it's not okay to help. And we'd rather just look the other way, unless they're poor people in another country. Right. Or specifically poor people of a different color in another country. Yes. Yeah. That whole thing about underreporting poverty is massive. I mean, it's not just that county, but that's awful, right? Um, we even see we even see it in big things like uh, Puerto Rico and the destruction that happened there, and then the numbers are drastically lower than they actually are, and that underreporting helps people or justifies people not allocating stuff in their budget for people in poverty. Um, right, and I think that that's part it's crazy. of crazy. Sorry, it's crazy. You got pushback. <laughs> I think right. that's nuts. Yeah, I mean, it was it was crazy. We, were, we you know we were just trying to like gather some supplies to go out and do a little outreach with food and you know, toiletries and stuff. And yeah, total pushback. It reminds me of you and I went to San Francisco with the youth, and they were telling us that it was illegal to actually hand out food because of you know like animal control kind of measures to take care of the homeless population in that area. And we led students in doing the opposite. Right. Uh, yeah. Well, I was going to say that that's part of that that false narrative is that it's that those very laws are dehumanizing because it's the same thing that we do around don't feed the seagulls. And like in certain areas where we want to like, you know, m make sure that certain animals aren't infesting a certain area. And it's it sounds harsh to say it that way, but that's exactly what it is, is because we want our property values to stay the same. We want our our parks to be pristine. We want our neighborhoods to look good in a brochure. And that seems to overshadow all that. I recently started just because I'm curious about the people in my area started um, uh, an account on, uh, I think it's next door, the app. Have you seen this? Yeah. Uh -huh. Basically like takes your neighborhood and you kind of get a feel. I regret every second of joining that. Mm -hmm. Just seeing some of the things that people Seriously, are saying about too. like, I like, saw a person of couple, a cuff color walking down the sidewalk today. Did anyone else see them? Like that kind of stuff. I heard infestation of homeless people. I heard um, all kinds of stuff like handouts, all the things that I think add to this false narrative that demonizes poor people and poverty and uh, and diminishes diminishes its reality in our very own country amongst our very own people. And it has bigger it has bigger consequences than just interpersonal relationships. When you demonize poverty, laws reflect that like it's illegal to be poor. Like for some people, they can't keep their child because they're poor. Just just for that reason alone, not right. because of anything else. And treating people that way has an exponential effect. And so I, I'm more interested. I'm still interested in how um, we can do church communities and communities of faith that teach people to humanize one another, to see each other as human beings. But um, I'm even more interested now in how our bigger things like budgets and um, structures affect regular people. 
it's it's awful. I mean, there, there's a lot of poverty in America. I mean, they, they break down society into five different groups now, right? I don't know of them all off the top of my head, but high class or the super high class and then middle class, um, lower middle class, working class. And there are people – I think like 40% of people are working, but they're the working poor. I mean, they work full time and they're still under the poverty line. Absolutely. So so that alone breaks down the narrative that I grew up with in the town I grew up with. It's like, you're poor if you're lazy. That's it. I mean, we we went through Proverbs, right? And the pastor preached on how like (laughs) you can't be – you can't be lazy because then you'll be poor. And then then we leave and we think about poverty in terms of that instead of Jesus who is – like flipping all that completely on its head. Right. And I mean, the I think it's connected to, to the perversion of like liberation gospel, which is that really God prefers the poor. There's preferential favor for the poor and um, how that's sort of been turned on its head through this prosperity gospel, which is, I think, infiltrated a lot of evangelical circles. I mean, it, it has deep roots in Protestantism. But it it certainly in the 80s probably really took off and became like a, a way to judge whether you were saved or not was right. how much money you had. Like, how did God bless you? And, that's and, so, and you're more moral, right? right? Especially prominent in charismatic circles, I can tell you firsthand. Even charismatic circles that reject prosperity gospel just have a different form of prosperity gospel. They don't take it to maybe certain extremes, but it's still very much present because blessedness is purely connected to your circumstances and your wealth and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I think that that's done a lot of damage. And Bonnie, you mentioned the 80s being the rise of this prominent theological and I put theological in quotes stance is in terms of prosperity gospel. But then it is when the eighties where we see a rise and a corresponding rise in discrepancies between, you know, the top CEO and the bottom worker at a particular company. So I don't think it's any coincidence that those things came to prominence at the same or roughly the same time in the, the eighties, it was somewhere floating around 42%. I think in 1980 it was like 42 to one. And mm-hmm. uh, it got as high as 525 to one in 2000. And now we're hovering right around the upper three hundreds in terms of the, the discrepancy. And that goes to that idea that Alan was talking about the working poor is that people are working full time jobs and we've demonized fast food workers, especially like, well, that's not a real job. They should get a real skill and all that kind of stuff, even though they're working harder than most of the people that are making a lot of money in this country, because money makes money. If you just have a million dollars and let it sit, you're going to make more than most people make working hard, full time jobs on a regular basis. And I think that that is never brought into the narrative and that further demonizes people. Right. You know, one of the the um, mottos, I guess, of the Poor People's Campaign is fight poverty, not the poor. And I think that's exactly what we're talking about. I'd love to see a church that fights poverty and not the poor. I'd love to see a church that talks about systemic stuff and not just like personal morality, because it doesn't just come down to that in our society. And honestly, can I just say something? It's not wrong to be poor. <laughs> like, you're you're not a sinful human being if you don't have money. I don't know how we got into that mindset. I guess it's been around forever that you're somehow worth less because you don't have as much. But especially the Jesus I see in the gospels doesn't speak to people that way, right? Blessed are the poor, the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek, for theirs is the earth. I mean He connects the poor to his calling. I I'm here to preach good news to the poor. And and, and have having a lot 
is not a marker of morality at all. I mean, it's like you saw the the rich young ruler is what we're going through a Bible study um, in my church right now through Mark. And the title is the rich young ruler, but it's in the text. It doesn't call him rich. It just says he has a lot of possessions. Like he's done everything in his life, everything right. He's followed the law. He's helped people. He's been, and not just helped people. He's been generous. He's given to the poor. He's been the perfect evangelical his entire, like his entire life. And he comes to Jesus and he says, what else do I need to have eternal life? That's the question that evangelicals always ask, right? What do I have to do to be saved? And Jesus says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Like talking to this bigger thing. It's not just that you're not a generous, you know, that you're a generous person. How are you participating in this system? And that that's radical. Like we've always been uncomfortable with that. What's interesting to me when we talk about the, the avoidance of systemic um, issues and really addressing those from a church perspective is that I don't know how it was taught for you two. And I'd like to hear your perspectives on this, but anytime I talk to even today an evangelical in terms of like government programs and stuff like that, the response is always, Government should stay out, you know, the, the typical big government thing. But then it's the church's job to take care of the poor and the government's job to protect us. And that that false dichotomy, like well, the church should be able to handle all of that particular, you know, area of that. So have you, have you experienced that critique, I guess, or that criticism <laughs> yeah. or that that view? And, and what do you think of it? M- more fleshed out. It's like. If we're not taxed by the government, we'd have enough to give to our church and our church would have enough to care for the core poor. And I call bullshit on that. Like, there's no way. Like, I work in ministry. I see behind the curtain. There's no way we can care for people's medical needs, people's mental health needs, like their entire. The church shouldn't be all of life. I mean, there should be a public sector. Christians have an interest in that, right? I mean, like, we shouldn't be. At, you're talking about collapsing government and church when you, at that point. You know, you're, you're, you're advocating for a theocracy where the church is the center of the town and takes care of everything. And I think that that kind of Christianity has, has, is dying and good riddance because it didn't do us any favors and it's hurt a lot of people. Yeah. It, it's, um, that way of thinking is exactly what you're saying, Alan, that there aren't any other faiths in our society in which to be, uh, partners. So. Um, the church does have a role in helping take care of the poor. I think that that is true. But part of our role is to tell our legislators that they need to step up and do what we've elected to, them to do, which is to make sure that the marginalized folks are cared for. And not just that, there should be a, a, a communal ethic. We can still speak across lines to non-religious people. To We, we can build a soci- mm-hmm. society with other people where morality matters. Or we can still create a public sphere that just because you're not a Christian, I still expect you to to put into the system if you're taking out of it. Right. I mean, that's just kind of like how it is. It's like, you know, I have a million dollars, but I'm, I'm not a Christian. So, you know, I don't have to give to the church and take care of the poor. It's like, no, you have a responsibility if you make money off of a, of a community and society to to pay back into it and to care for it. And the the issue that the reason I'm passionate about this, that's how we kind of started. I know we've hit on like a million different subjects and I want to be careful about just doing the fire hose thing where it's like, there's all these different topics we could do, um, you know, an episode on every single one of them. But the reason I'm here is wealth inequality. Jeff, you brought it up, um, the gap between the richest and, and the lowest. And I started caring about it. I would say like um, six years ago, I saw this article that said, 200 or 300 people own as much as half of the world's population. 
And I was like, wow, that's mind blowing. How can that few people? And then I watched every year as it went down, went down from 300 to 80 to 60 to eight in 2016. Um, they've revised some of their numbers recently. So they're doing the math differently now, but watching that progression, I kind of did this like mental, mental, like a experiment. If you flew a spaceship and you hit a planet where there's 7 billion beings and eight of them own as much as 3.5 billion, would you think of like, wow, there's like brotherhood and justice and fraternity and like mutual care? No, you'd think of like like a beehive, right? Like a hive mind with a queen and then everyone else are all the drones and stuff. And so I, I want to hear how we can return morality back into the way that we structure our systems. And and that's why I joined the Poor People's Campaign with Bonnie. Can we talk about that now? Should we go into that a little bit? Well, I, I want to. I want you to clarify a couple of things because I'm curious. Yes. Um, I think that morality is a weighted word, and when we say that, so many people have so many perspectives on what morality is because yes. the Christian right would say we need to take away the rights of the LGBTQ community because we need morality back in that. So I, I, I'm, I'm wondering if it would be better stated as like humanity or a value for for all human life. But even then, that goes into more like pro life things. So so. What what do you mean by when we say morality? What is that? What is that? And is there like a universal for everyone? I lo- I love that because you're right. Morality for a lot of the the far right wing Christians. I mean, it's the politics. moral majority, right? Right, so it's and they their would say word. taking away handouts is the moral thing to do so that people can you know be self reliant again. Um, I think it's providing health care to everyone. I mean, think about it. I mean, whoa, whoa, whoa. How many... Alan, Alan, please. That <laughs> seems a little extreme. Next thing you're going to say, like, people should be educated and have their basic needs taken care of and all that stuff. And I don't, right. I don't know if we should go that far, Alan. I think that that's <laughs> even calling it the middle class is like is so spurious. Is that the right word? Spurious? Because if you have one problem, you're bankrupt. Right. I mean, like you're one slip away from abject poverty. And for a lot of people, millions of people, that's in the form of cancer. Right. I mean, the medical issue is directly connected to our our poverty level. I'm, I mean, or our income level for sure. Because again, like, yeah, one one severe medical issue, an accident, anything can just take it away in a second. And, and I almost want to say it's just based on common sense morality, not like anyone's because common sense morality says like you know the the majority of our discretionary spending shouldn't be put into a machine that creates like this you know the military industrial complex so when i speak about morality and budgets and stuff i guess you're right there there is a debate there but the reason that some of the christians like reverend barber started this poor people's campaign they use morality because that's what it is Absolutely. I mean, are we are we so ignorant of the human experience that we can't say this is right and this is wrong? I think we are. That's the problem. <laughs> well, is then the, that's what we should be talking about. Yes. Right? Yes, exactly. Is reclaiming, like you said, our humanity, the idea of a universal morality. Um, you know, there's some basic things, right, where we can say, hey, it's not OK that people are dying of cancer on their couches. When we live in a society where we have plenty of medical care, we have all the resources that those people need in order to get the treatment that they need. Like, that's just not okay. That's that's just a universal that's universal morality, I guess. Right. Yeah, I'm ready certain... to stake my claim on that. <laughs> I agree. There are certain things that should not have to be earned. And I think that that's part of the problem is that we have come up with this. I don't know where we've, well, I guess it's more of just the American capitalistic way, but that the, 
everything that you have should be earned. And if you don't earn it in the right way, because, but they'll, but people will use the term hard work, but we know that that's not true. Some of the hardest working people in our country are in poverty and are suffering from a lot of the things that we're talking about. Right. You know, when people talk about what they earn, it's like you didn't earn paved roads out in front of your house. Right. You didn't earn, you know, all the infrastructure that goes into place in order to make the money that you're able to make. So we're we have to contribute to this common this common property, common good, whatever it is that we want to call it, because there's no way there's no way any one of us could earn all the things. I would take that a step further. I would take the concept of of not earning. There's such a thing as unearned income. It used to be in our society, if you made over a certain number, you'd be taxed 95%. So it punished companies for paying their CEOs millions upon millions. There's such a huge gap because there there was an idea in our society that um, being too rich was a problem. I mean, having concentrations of wealth by themselves destroy democracy. Because it, it creates power gaps. It creates um, incentives. I mean, like, look at our politics. All of us, you know, right, left, middle, it doesn't matter. We all say, God, we wish we can get money out of politics. There's all – even Trump ran on that. You know, let's get money out of politics. Everyone agrees. And the, the thing is, when you let wealth amass like we have in our society, um, it it doesn't allow for democracy because of these um, – these differences. So I, I would be interested in going back to a concept of unearned income. Once someone makes past $50 million in a year, I don't know where you said it, like that's going to be a 95% tax because we're not interested in having a society that has the extremely wealthy and the extremely poor. But the problem with that, and again, I'm not an economist. So if anyone who's listening has an alternate perspective, this is this is just a surface level economics 101 that I took in <laughs> in college. Uh, but the whole, the parameter, the, the measuring stick of our nation's economy is excess, right? So a company... Because it's based off the stock market. So a company can make money every year in increments. But if it's not like an excessive amount, like 50% growth or 110% growth, then their stock goes down and then our economy goes down. So our economy base is excess. Yeah. Just today. I saw that on the the news. Facebook, they had new – they had growth. But it wasn't as much as they expected. So their stock dove the biggest dive in like American history just now. So we're all affected when things aren't growing in excess. So we're all affected by the lack of greed. I want to say the poorest are affected. The rich are not affected by dips, by dips in the market. This is really sad when the market does well. Poor people, it doesn't really affect them. The rich people make money off of it. We saw that with the the housing crisis. Yeah, but the but the working poor are still the working poor. Like every time I'm in the gym and I see like you know the stocks going up, it doesn't always translate to good stuff for the lowest and most vulnerable in our society. But the dips in the stock market absolutely do because they'll cut jobs, they'll outsource warehouse work, all sorts of stuff. Exactly. So, what do you do? Like, like so let's let's go into the poor people's campaign. Like, what is the what is the catalyst for that, Bonnie? And then how how are those big system systemic issues really addressed? Yeah, well, the Poor People's Campaign is is a coalition of different organizations coming together, primarily led by um, Reverend William Barber of Repairs of the Breach. He and Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove are partners and um, have been for a long time working on issues around poverty. But it and it's it was. Inspired by Dr. King's Poor People's Campaign way back in the day, and Dr. King was assassinated before it really had a chance to sort of take off, and they are 
pulling it from history into our time, knowing, as Alan says, that the wealth disparity is just increasing tremendously and that we have all of these laws to fight against the poor rather than to help fight poverty. So this is carrying forward what Dr. King began many years ago. Just to jump in, Dr. King, before he was assassinated, had like, was it 5,000 5, people or something at um, the Capitol Mall? They actually set up Shantytown yeah, like, it was right, a, right in front of the White House. It was House like or, a lot of thousands of people. Right. I'm not sure how many, but and they were living hundreds there. of thousands. And that was his like thing is he was going to help poor people and he was assassinated. Like that was the last thing he did. And so this is carrying so, it on. So its primary objective is to eliminate legislation and create new legislation that uh, either through reg- corporate regulation or specific housing or I don't want to say welfare programs, but I mean – welfare programs just because of the the negative connotation when we say welfare but you know government funded programs to help people um get on their feet or just you know survive well you know? there there's five pillars do you remember them bonnie no there's them? there yeah there are, i think four there's the war industrial complex yeah the right environmental devastation how all of these things are connected to poverty right race and then economics so the Poor People's Campaign says we need to look at the issues as overlapping, intersected issues. And they have gathered a coalition of folks who who disagree with each other on some things. However, they come together on the idea that we need to stop fighting the poor and fight poverty instead. And so the Poor People's Campaign is, you know, they they another one of their taglines is we're creating a movement, not a moment. Yeah. And I saw one person say, that's too much. You're focusing on way too much. Pick one, you know, of those different things. And the response is, we don't have an accurate picture of poverty because if you're a working poor person and your tap water has lead in it, like, how does that impact your daily life? Do you have access to healthcare? Oh, there's no good healthcare facilities in your area or there's no groceries in your neighborhood. So, uh, looking at how poverty works, it's it's all these intersected things. How does race play into your lived experience? Biting off that big of a like thing, th- that's the only way to do it. Otherwise, we're playing into a system that that doesn't take into account, like Placer County, right? That doesn't take into account Eldorado County or Eldorado County doesn't take into account people's lived experiences. Um, I love that the military industrial complex is part of it. I mean, Dr. King talked about that a lot. And then now our military, our military literally quotes him when they're giving out awards to people and said, oh, there, there was someone went on. I can't remember which official it was went on record saying, oh, he would be he'd be OK with the type of military we have now. And it's like, well, it's really easy to speak for dead people, but I'm pretty damn sure <laughs> that he would not. It worse about, than when when yeah, when he was around. I mean, was. gosh, that goes to the fundamental question of of the the big criticism towards people when they say, well, people should have free college and free health free health care. And it's like, well, who's going to pay for it? Well, maybe we should stop blowing shit up and we'll be right. able to pay for it because uh, the, the, the numbers are astronomical as far as what it is to our budget. Hey, but, speaking of astronomical, we're going to space. Oh, I know. We're going to Mars, right? Oh, gosh. No, no. We're going the to space, space force. to have the Space Force. You space know, someone force. in the Poor People's Campaign, this woman, was like, hey, if I brought a gun into a into a um, bank and I waved it around and I never fired it, I'm still using that gun. 
And she says, the United States builds the biggest military complex in the history of the world and waves it around in all these other countries at the behest of our corporations. We're doing that. We're using it. We're using it around the world. And now we're literally going to be out of the world looking in all over the planet with a space force. And I, I feel like there's a moral component to that. Not not just for the suffering of the people in our society. I mean, that's a huge thing, right? It's a big part of our budget. Our entire economy is now built on it. We're the largest exporter of arms in the world. And uh, I think that there's also a moral component for what it does to the rest of the world to allow a country to do what we've done. Well, and now we're talking about the universe, not just the world. <laughs> right. The solar system. That sounds like a joke. I can't believe. Question. Yeah. So, so with all this, uh, you know, obviously those are those are lofty goals as well. They should be for any organization in order to make real, lasting change and not temporary change. You know, for moments, the difference between a movement and a and a moment. So, one of the key components, I'm assuming, and we've talked about it a little bit, but I think we should kind of give it more more attention, is one of the means to do that outside of you know regular legislation, or I don't know if there's a lobbying co- component, but the idea of protest where. That also itself is demonized, especially now in the current administration, any kind of opposing voice. So, Bonnie, what is what is the strategy or the role of protest in accomplishing those goals? Yeah, I think uh, protest is essential. I mean, there's certainly the playbook of Gandhi and Dr. King and many others, right, who who said even when it seems like all the forces are against us, we still have this and we can still put our bodies on the line as a community and face off against whatever force comes our way. And so I think the Poor People's Campaign is living into the spirit of that for sure. Um, and I think, you know, it's it's also just great training ground for when things come up in one's own community, like even in one's own neighborhood. How do you organize to like address the issue? There are teachers like Dr. Barber and others who can kind of show us the way. I mean, Jesus himself was the leader of a protest and it got him killed. And um, of poor people, they marched with him on uh, the triumphal entry was a the triumphal entry was a bunch of poor people following Jesus on a donkey. Right. So for me, you know, as a Christian and as a Christian minister, pro the role of protest is me as a disciple of Jesus. It's discipleship. It's central to the Sermon on the Mount, right? Like he's not addressing just individual morality. He's addressing a people and how you deal with the power structure that is completely outside of of your control and how you can find moments of power reversal and stuff like that. And uh, we don't talk about that enough in terms of protest and why it's important and, and creating moments to look at the overall um, change in a, in a particular movement. You know, we saw it with Selma and a lot of more prominent situations like that. Um, so, so what has been your experience with that? Like how often and how, how strategic and how far ahead are specific protests plan and what, what goes into those things? Um, well, I think in Sacramento anyway, I sort of got involved in, in protesting the local community with Stephen Clark's murder. And it was through the Black Lives Matter Sacramento chapter that um, I got involved with protesting here locally. Um, and you get to know there's something about protesting together. You, you get to know the folks who keep showing up for these things and it becomes its own community. And you realize that maybe the, maybe the issue isn't something you're most passionate about, but because your friends are going to be there and they're passionate about it, you show up for it too. 
And, um, you know, it became really clear to me that it's about numbers of people, but it's more than that. It's also about strength and the people's voices and how much they're willing to talk from their own experience and how those of us who are from more privileged places are willing to step back and let other voices, the affected voices kind of come to the center, which I think, you know, Jesus was an example of as well. Um, so going into the poor people's campaign, it just felt like a natural next thing. And it was connected to all the other things that were already happening here in Sacramento related to Stephen Clark's murder um, by police officers. When they announced it, and we're at the the heart of California because it's the state capital, and these protests were happening all over the country at state capitals. And my church is like eight miles from the Capitol building or something. It's just like, okay, there's there was no choice. I had to show up for it as much as possible. It started the day after Mother's Day, May 14, and went for six weeks, every single Monday for six weeks. And I think I missed one. And on the last one, which was all about moral narrative and about re reconstructing the gospel for those of us who are Christians and joining people of other faith to say, here's where we stand, here's what's right, here's what's wrong, and here's what we want changed. And so, yeah, I told Alan, I was like, you have to come to this. I was like, you have to come. You live here. So I did. Uh, we went to the <laughs> state capitol the sixth week. And I joined uh, the group of people who risked arrest and we went into um, the there was the assembly, the state assembly, the state senate and the governor's office. And there was three groups of us that split up. Some people were just watching. Some people were actually participating. They call them moral witnesses. And uh, we went in and after there was let's see, we went to the gallery. They made us wait a really long time. And we went into the um the assembly gallery at the top, all the lawmakers were on the floor. There must've been maybe like a hundred, 150 of them. And they were passing a resolution that decried, uh, rightfully Trump's separation of families at the border. All of the Californian lawmakers, Democrat and Republican in that, in that room unanimously voted to say, this is not who we are as a country. They all applauded that they had people stand up talking person after person saying, this is not who we are. And so when they finished, our group stood up and said, we really appreciate you passing that. Now, here are the ways that we separate families in our own community in California and how California has a 20% up to a 20% poverty rate, which is like the highest in the nation at the time. And so we stood up and uh, we had two different people speaking. I can't remember her name, one of the, the ministers. And there were uh, about 10 or 12, 14 of us. And I was like wearing my clergy stuff and we sang songs. Um, the main thing was serving the Californian government on behalf of the poor because of the way that our society is set up. 85% of people cannot access our legal system. Even if they have a civil complaint or they have a complaint that something happened to them, they do not have the resources to hire lawyers to bring something forward to the court. So to argue their case for them, we, in the people's opinion court, held up this like big sheet of things that we're addressing everything from uh you know water and air quality to the the way that we penalize poor people in like i don't know 15 different ways and so we read that out before the lawmakers and then we sang and then they started arresting us uh, a couple 
couple people at a time. There wasn't enough officers. And so, cause we were doing actions at three different places around the Capitol. Is this too much to talk about? Or is this like, I don't know if I'm giving away <laughs> anything or if that's like, are your charges dropped? Okay. So uh, yeah, I'm going to keep talking. So I, uh, um, I was the last three people to be arrested in the, in the California state assembly. This guy said, all right, you three are arrested. Follow me. They just didn't have enough people to take everyone out. And so as we're walking out, I turned around back. I didn't talk the whole time. Like th- that wasn't my place. And as Bonnie said, like centering the people who are affected is super important to lev- let them have a place to speak. And as I was turning around, I just had to. So I, I turned around as I was walking out and I talked to all this, the, all these people in the California state assembly. And I just told them, Poverty is California's problem. Like you can join us as moral witnesses and we need a moral budget. And then I walked out and I made eye contact with, there was like eight lawmakers who were paying attention. The rest were kind of like <laughs> doing what everything, something else. Um, Cause this had happened, you know, this is the sixth week. So they're tired of it. Well, when we first stood up, they applauded us for a few seconds. You know, they turned around and applauded and then they all went to their own, did their own thing. But some people watched. And after we finished, um, I, I was arrested and released. I'll talk about that in a second. But after we finished, the California State Assembly posted a picture on Facebook of those eight people that I made eye contact with. And I'm not saying it was me. I know it wasn't me because I joined way late in the program. And this is something that like has been going on. But they all committed to to fasting and thinking about the stuff that um, the Poor People's Campaign brought to them. And we're like, wow, that may be a symbolic move, but that's really cool that that they're at least listening and paying attention to what's being said from the poor people in, in their state. I mean, the renovation of the state capital is uh, is going to cost way more than is earmarked for homeless people. Um, that's something that I heard and, and, and lo- looked up. So I was arrested and brought into a room and there was about 12 of us. And there was so many, so much happening at the Capitol at, the, at that time that they decided to release us. They filled out this form that commuted our arrest to detention. Like, I don't know if it was time served or something like that, but just commuted it to just a detention and released us. So we went back. Uh, we left that room. We were free to go. And some people joined another group that was in front of the uh, governor's office. Bonnie was there with me and everybody was singing and there was CHP everywhere. And they started knocking on the governor's door to give him this document saying, these are the things on behalf of the poor that we are, you know, charging California with. He never opened the door. <laughs> and at one point they said, whoever touches that door, you're going to jail. And so um, this woman of color, this like, she was retired and I had spoken to her at one point and she said, she's doing this because she feels like she can, because she's retired. She put her body up on there and I was like, oh my God, people putting their body on the line where their voices are not heard was just one of the most beautiful things I've seen. Absolutely. So then Bonnie, I'm assuming you were also arrested in this whole scenario. Uh, Alan, probably because he's a, you know, wonderful white male <laughs> was able to get off a little bit easier. Um, wh- what was what was your experience like? And and are you still awaiting <laughs> resolution to that? Yeah, I was arrested on I think it was the third week of the Poor People's Campaign. And the issues that we were focusing on that week were environmental justice and justice for indigenous people. So there were a lot of um, Native people gathered at the Capitol. It was like such a powerful time. And we heard prayers and songs from several indigenous um, languages. And uh, part of the, the action was there's in the California State Capitol in the rotunda, there's the statue of Christopher Columbus, like bringing the world, the globe to Queen Isabel of Spain. And that's this huge marble statue, like right in the middle of the rotunda. 
and why it's there, nobody knows. You know, it's so um, for a long time, California Native people have protested that statue and wanted it removed. So the Poor People's Campaign said, we're going to join these folks in protesting the statue. And there were 14 of us who had signed up to be moral witnesses that week. And we all surrounded the statue. And CHP is the there. That's the law enforcement agency that's charged with uh, keeping everything safe and orderly in the Capitol building. So as we got closer to the statue, CH, CHP sort of came and they circled the statue in an inner circle with us around the outside. And um, we just like held them there. It was it was an incredibly powerful experience to sort of face off a CHP officer, like face to face, nose to nose, while we're singing these songs like, you know, we are not afraid we would die for liberation because then we know why we were made. They decided that they were not going to arrest us like they kept trying to back down, kept trying to back down. And then we kept escalating things so that they would come back. So they left and everyone got very excited and sort of declared victory like, yeah, this is the people's house and this, the law enforcement has left. And so we now get to have this free reign of this rotunda area. And um, people were, you know, coming closer to the statue, touching it, like cursing it probably. Um, and as soon as anybody put their hands on it, CHP came racing back in. And then it was very much like the experience that Alan shared where, you know, someone said, if you hit the door one more time, you'll be arrested. Well, in our case, it was we kept getting close to the statue and they were not comfortable with that. And we could touch it. But if we put anything on the statue, we would be arrested. So I had a, a, an armband, which we wore to identify ourselves as moral witnesses. It helped the organizers know who was risking arrest and who wasn't. And I took that off of my sleeve and I just draped it over the arm of Christopher Columbus. And for that, I was taken to the CHP um, processing center in Sacramento and then to Sacramento County Jail. And I spent the night in the county jail. I was released um, like about 4.30, I think, in the morning. And uh, my court date is still pending. I still have charges against me that... We will see what happens. And three of my church members were arrested and spent long hours in jail. Um, One spent quite quite a while. Mm -hmm. I'm, glad, I'm glad you mentioned that because I think that this is an important thing. First of all, I don't think we should ever, and I'm sure both of you agree, we should ever discount the power and weight of symbolic actions because I think that those add more to the narrative to inspire people than anything else. Um, and then the other part of that is you you both are lead pastors in your congregations. How important is it for churches to be involved in protest? Because usually the line is, well, the church shouldn't be too political or they're afraid to lose their whatever status uh, for taxes and all that kind of stuff. But to, to lead your congregations and, and Bonnie, you saying to Alan, you have to be a part of this. This is your community. You're you're the lead of this church. Um, why? Why do you think churches are hesitant to do it? And why is it important that they, they not be hesitant and actually get involved in these things? I, I've, I've, I lost people in my community when I did that. And I, I, I mean, they have other reasons to say it, but I do believe that people, and this is, I don't want to like, <laughs> maybe this is way too intimate and it crosses pastoral boundary lines, but I do feel like 
it made a lot of people in my church uncomfortable, even though we're pretty progressive. It's more of a family church. And so there are people there just because of their, their relationships. That's like any church. And, uh, when you, when your pastor suddenly is doing this kind of stuff, it does change the nature of the church. I mean, you're putting yourself out there. It's scary. And, and, you know, we're, we're, we're even in this room here talking together, um, you know, we're talking about how we want to completely undo a system, and yet each one of us benefits in some way from the system. And so when it does come crashing down, which is what the protests are designed for, how will that impact us? Well, we may end up with less than we have right now. And being willing to accept that reality is part of participating in these actions. So in answer to your question, yeah, the church is like, what else is church for? That's that's all I that's the way that's I good. respond to those questions. Really? What else is it for? Is it a social club? Right. It's to be comforted. I, it, and so the, so this I'm going to push back at that. There's a lot of people who go to church for comfort. They hear all the crap. They hear all the politicizing, the antagonism and the, the, the back and forth on Facebook and their families, they, you know, tensions and their relationships. They want to come to a place where they experience the transcendence of God and they can just disconnect from all of that stuff. So for some people, that's what it is. But, yeah, but you could do that in a quiet park or under a tree. Like <laughs> yeah. you're you're joining an institution I, I still, and a group for a reason. Right. And, and and I still think that that's an element of the gospel. That's an element of Jesus saying my yoke is easy, my it, burden is light. It's not either or. Right. It's not either or. You're right. you come together because there's work to do. And so you hold one another, comfort one another, bolster one another so that you can go out and do what still needs to be done. I mean, at some point, right, we, we're, we're longing for this kingdom to come into being or this reality of justice and peace and on all the things that we, we believe are needed in the world. And when that happens, then yeah, we can sit down and relax and, you know, drink our tea <laughs> and chat about things. But between now and then, there is work to do. I love that. That's really well said. It is. And this might be too much for, I mean, I don't know people might get in trouble for saying this or I might get in trouble for saying this, but it's almost as if the programs that churches usually have to help those in need are only allowing the system to continue the way it is because we're just covering up for all the things that are happening. So we can pass out food, we can give money to homeless shelters and all that kind of stuff. But if you are not as a church, and I'm just saying as a church or as a, as a congregation, as a, as a, the body of Christ, if you're not then also in conjunction with that, doing what you can to deconstruct those systems, then all you're doing is the equivalent of enabling, right? Yeah, enabling, and also you're patting yourself on the back, right? You're, it's it's a it's a sort of satiating the moral, I don't know, the compunction, the the, the things that go on in your the head. Holy Spirit, there you go. <laughs> That's tugging at your brain. That is that is saying that this is wrong. And you're not doing anything about it. So let me go serve at a homeless shelter or soup kitchen or something, which all of those things are super important. But when that's all that one does and doesn't try to actually change things in society, the ways that we relate to one another in society through law, through, I mean, not just law, through just the way that our just the way that culturally we relate to one right. another, then, yeah, you're right. You just uphold the same systems. Yeah, because you have to dress the wound, but that's uh -huh. not all. You also have to figure out where the cause of that wound right. and everything that's happening. So it's it's not either or. Like you said before on the other issue, it's it's got to be both. Yeah, absolutely. So here's here's the rub. The work uh the work of 
questioning the system is so uncomfortable for some people. I can't remember who it was, but someone said that Christians in America have just enough Christianity to be inoculated against it. Like we, we have just enough of like the Christian message or Christianishness that we don't actually have to like face the message of the gospel and the, and follow Jesus. And I, I feel like for pastors, especially I'm feeling it for myself, helping people question what they've been taught or question what they think about poor people, about the system, about, um, everything. I mean, the, the way crony capitalism works now, like all of that stuff, um, that's, that's a really uncomfortable prophetic work. And a lot of people don't ever want to touch that stuff there. They have enough Christianity that they don't want it to affect that kind of their identity. And so I, I'm interested in knowing how as pastors, <laughs> like leading people in those directions without over politicizing and, um, burning people out. I don't know if you can, but. Well, I think that, you know, one thing, you know, I'm, I'm going to just speak from a place of whiteness. I think one thing that whiteness has done to those of us who have white skin and move around with white privilege is it's disconnected us from our own experiences of oppression and suffering and the ways that we have or our ancestors have experienced oppression and suffering. Um, and so we always get to keep those things sort of at arm's length. And it's this very fragile relationship between, well, you know, at least I'm not them, meaning poor people, person of color, whatever it is that's sort of that us and them. And yet I think if we sort of dive into our own p experience of pain and suffering that and connect to that, maybe possibly then we can say that you know, this is this is wrong when it happens anywhere, however it happens. And if I see somebody else in a situation where they're experiencing pain and suffering, I have to do something about it because I have some sort of connection to it in my own history or in my own life. So it's like in, in a way, it's like we have to denumb ourselves and that whiteness is a great numbing agent. Having that conversation with parishioners, using the gospel as a way to like take away this experience of numbness and othering others, other people, um, I think is powerful. I mean, that's why I'm a Christian. That's why I belong to a church. I remember the first time I saw a picture of this, these eugenic stuff at the turn of the century. And there was an Irish person on the left and it had all their facial features. And then there was like, you know, a regular white person and then someone else on the right. That was the first time I saw my facial features as other like I'd never experienced that before, but like that is in my past and whiteness has just erased all of that. And now when I look in the mirror, I'm like, dang, I'm other <laughs> anyway. All right. So, so where does that leave us? I think we, we've kind of hit mm -hmm. the issue of, of, of poverty, you know, in broad strokes, obviously, because we only have a certain amount of time. So, so where does that leave us now? What maybe, maybe we think of it in terms of this, what should we do on like an individual level? And then how can we, if we're a part of a faith community, challenge our faith community to step into those roles of, of challenging systems and, and being more um, part of protest? So, so where does that leave us? I, I think a unique hurdle is there's a lot of people who don't think it's right to protest, like getting arrested and stuff like that, that it's immoral and it's wrong, just period. I would speak to those people and to those communities and say, um, there are no options for poor people. There are no appropriate 
channels for poor people to address these issues. Um, there, there's just none because we have no access. They have no access to the court system for a number of reasons. I mean, just surviving takes all of your energy. I would say that love demands finding other channels. Yeah, I think too. you know, read the prophets. I mean, that's a, that's a place to start. When God enacts judgment in the Bible, what is it for? It's it's generally when people are out of line with what they know is right and wrong. When it comes to taking care of immigrants, taking care of widows, taking care of orphans. And, um, you know, Jesus says the poor will always be with us. So there's always going to be work for us to do. And Dr. Barber, is, is he wrote this book called The Third Reconstruction, which I recommend to anybody who might want to sort of look at our history in the United States and see how we have these opportunities throughout our country's history to do something different and not let the wealth disparity grow and not let poor people become victimized by our government, but instead give them a voice to participate. And and he, he says it's this is a moral issue. And so churches, our job, our space in the realm of society is the moral space. So let's step up and act as moral people. Mm-hmm. And, and I would add on to that is that our identity as Christians is steeped in protest. Our word gospel is a protest against, you know, militaristic, you know, nationalistic moving in and conquering people through force. Our our mantra of Jesus is Lord is a direct political statement. You know, it would be the equivalent today of, you know, making the mantra America is not great in response to make America great again. Like this is our identity, even though we've lost it for centuries in certain ways. But if we want to reclaim uh, a New Testament church or a New Testament perspective, we can't separate ourselves from the political nature of protest and what it is. And uh, to deny that is to deny Jesus. And you know what he said, you know what Jesus says about denying him in front of man. So, (laughs) (laughs) and and if I could throw a few more biblical like resources for people, look up the concept of Jubilee debt forgiveness in the Hebrew Bible is integral to what it means to be a Jewish person. And, um, think about debt in terms of that in our society. I mean, debt is, uh, there's whole countries that are massively in debt and people in debt and debt forgiveness. That's a God thing. That's a God centered thing. It's a moral thing to do. And, um, you know, just concepts, laws of like leaving the corners of your field for for those who don't have anything. That's built all the way as far back as you can go in the Bible. It's not just New Testament. It's but there are so many resources in the in the Bible itself that like stare us in the face. If you want to jump into that stuff, message me and we'll go off on a tangent. Right. So all of the things that we mentioned in this conversation are in the show notes at irenacast.com slash 123. And you can comment on those show notes by giving us your opinion. Or if you follow us on Facebook, that's where we're probably the most active in terms of conversation. You can comment on the post for this particular episode. We definitely want to hear from you. We want to hear you add your voice to this conversation and give us your thoughts. That's irenacast.com slash 123. Uh, this was a good conversation. On the other side of the music, I'm looking forward to playing a good old-fashioned round of Jesus Freak. So... 
Jesus Juke is our I think our first or second segment that we ever did. And this in this segment, each of us have come up with an item, and the other two co-hosts have to turn that item into a sermon illustration. Um, preferably a cheesy uh, evangelical sermon illustration that uh, really makes the item seem more ridiculous than it actually is. Uh, so we've we played this several I have times to in the past. Explain it every time. I've interrupted you every time you've done this. Yes, and I get so excited. Alan's an over-explainer. So go ahead, Alan. Introduce John Acuff, and I still don't know how to say his last name. As many years later, he originally coined the term Jesus Juke, like juking in basketball, and it's where you take. A conversation or just something in life that's going normal and you just veer it toward Jesus no matter what. You know, all the rest of the traffic be damned. You're going to get to the farthest lane you can. <laughs> it doesn't even matter. And uh, like you go up to someone who's wearing socks and you say, oh, those are cool striped socks. Have I, have you ever heard about Jesus? That reminds me of how Jesus is striped. You know, you go in to talk about whatever you're talking about. The ultimate Jesus juke is if you go on YouTube, I'll put a link in the description. We've mentioned this before is the monster drink lady where this lady gives this detailed instruction on how the monster energy drink is from Satan and it's pushing young people towards uh, service to Satan. And it's, it's horrible, but wonderful at the same time. It is, it is my favorite term to use awesome full because it's awesomely awful. And uh, that's an evergreen video. It is. That'll always be be just at the top (laughs) of my list every now and then I watch it just to be like humanity has made it horrified and entertained. Okay, so Bonnie, we will let you uh, go first to give your item to kind of get a feel for how the game works. And of course, as a as a special guest host, we want to be good hosts ourselves of the space. So I haven't uh, done this in a while, Jeff. Are you ready? I'm a little nervous. <laughs> I'm always ready for this one. This is I'm I'm an associate pastor, so I always have to be on call to like give a sermon <laughs> if someone's uh, sick. So right. <laughs> I'm always ready for this. Okay, so my item is stockings stockings so stockings stockings being like leggings or like pantyhose or like what yeah like pantyhose okay all right i was thinking christmas stockings pantyhose i'm ready alan if, if you want me to go first yes please okay so we've all seen the movies the television shows where people bust through the front doors of a bank to rob and many times, it's the stereotype of putting pantyhose over their head to conceal their identity. And that's exactly what our sin does. It conceals our identity. And our identity is people of God. We are made and, and born in the image of God. And every time we sin, we conceal God's face in our life. And therefore, we miss out on God's blessings and opportunities to use us in every way possible. Wow, that was Amen. good. Amen. Are they supposed to be over the top, like exaggerated sermons that like reflect bad theology or good theology? However you want. Supposed- I usually go bad theology because it's more fun. So <clears throat> whatever you want. Okay. I always have such a hard time with this. <laughs> I have two different ones. I have two different ones. Just pick one. Pick one. Yeah. Okay. You can, in a pinch, use pantyhose. To filter water, uh, you <laughs> you can take water from a river, and as muddy as it is, it doesn't matter how muddy it is. 
you can filter it through pantyhose to make it a little bit more drinkable. And so Jesus is like pantyhose. Like we take all the mud of our life, all the stuff that happens to us. And when we filter it through the lens of, of Jesus's life giving hope and a uh, challenge to us, we, we have a little bit more drinkable water that makes our days a little bit easier. I was going to say something about when you rend a pantyhose, it just, you know, keeps running and you can't fix it. Mm. That's probably a little bit outside of your experience though. <laughs> hey, you never know. Nail polish. I never know. <laughs> Nail polish. Nail polish oh, will hey, fix a run in the pen. So there you hey. go. That's another whole thing. Okay. So that's just God's saving grace. Nail polish. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh my gosh. See, I missed out. Could have. Okay. Well, you have to decide between who had the best sermon illustration. Oh, I have to pick. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, Alan. Definitely, Jeff. <laughs> well, I got definitely host has said that like you that. could put together a little. I think I think you aired Alan in that Jesus was just good in a pinch, but not all the time. Like Jesus was <laughs> Jesus was an okay solution until you find something better, right? And that was he doesn't clean the water completely; you know, it just makes it a little more drinkable. That's right there, that fell apart. <laughs> okay, I was waiting for like a water to wine kind of thing. Or <laughs> wasn't sure. Okay, right, go that's creative. Definitely, creative. I'm gonna go next. Uh, all right, I have. A water bobble, the kind that you stick into a plant that's filled with water and it self-waters it over time. You know, the ass seen on TV. Oh, okay. Like the colored glass. It's called a water bobble. I actually don't know what it's called, but that's what I'm calling it. It's And it self-waters plants. It's like a bulb of glass oh. with like a long like stem of glass that you just stick into the soil. And it slowly you fill up with water seeps and You stick down. it in and it slowly seeps in. Bonnie, go ahead. Okay. So a water bobble that you stick in a plant that so that the water will slowly seep in over time. That sounds to me a lot like our spiritual disciplines of prayer and Bible study. You know, when things are really hard in life, if you just fill yourself up <laughs> with prayer and Bible study, that when it gets tough, you can count on those resources to slowly seep into your life and give you the strength that you need to make it through the hard times. Nice. Woo-hoo. Very nice. Very nice. I'm going to I was going to go something similar instead of spiritual discipline, the spirit like. Okay. But, but I'm, I'm going to stick with the theme of sin. So many times we go through life and we find ourselves throwing out a little white lie, you know, thinking that there's nothing problem with that. We throw out these little sins, these little things that, that begin to, to stain our soul. And it's like the water thing, bobble. <laughs> uh, it slowly seeps into who we are. And soon we find that we have veered so far from God. We've become saturated with our own sin that our evil grows and grows and grows. And the giant from the top of the clouds climbs down that beanstalk, the giant being Satan, and totally overtakes our life and begins to hurt not only us, but those that we love as well. Amen. What kind of coffee did you drink this morning? <laughs> Satan's on your mind. <laughs> That's right. The beanstalk. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, man, I love both of those. It's a really hard hard uh, to, to choose. But I'm going to go with uh, Bonnie because Bonnie said – that sounds to me like <laughs> I think it was that <laughs> phrase that got me. <laughs> oh, thank right. you. Oh, it's so funny. 
Although, Jeff, I do like the Jack and the Beanstalk Satan mashup. I tried to take it to a next level. Like, I didn't want to juke. It was, yeah, yeah, definitely. (laughs) All right, Jeff, you got one for us? Yes, I do. Coasters. I'll go first this time. Go for it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, Everybody has that friend. That friend who comes over and you give them water, you give them coffee, you try to make them feel at home, and they just set their drink right on the coffee table. They see the stack of coasters. It doesn't matter. Maybe they don't see it and they set it there. And it is our job as good hosts to help people be good guests. So we ought, we who are good hosts always offer a coaster, right? Here's a coaster. Oh, a coaster should go there. And it is just like how Christians, when we see people sinning and we see people not doing what they should be doing, we should be good hosts of the world that God has made us and give them the appropriate tools to not sin and to live righteous lives. Interesting. Amen. I like it. Praise be. Evangelism coasters. <laughs> Pass out your coaster. I went to a seminary that did some, or a, not seminary, a Bible college that went did some sin hunting. So I'm used to that kind of thing. Wow. I worked in a Bible bookstore. I feel like we could have... Uh, moved those Bible coasters. and. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you ready? Yes. Let me see. You know, so sometimes people ask me, so how does Jesus save us? You know, like, how does, how does, it, how does it work exactly? And one way that I tell, I try to explain it is I say, consider the coaster. <laughs> So you have your glass, right? And there's condensation and there's water dripping and it's going to make a mess. This represents our lives. And then you put Jesus down on the table. You set the glass on top. And so, and the table is God. So Jesus, Jesus is the one who inserts himself by giving his very life to separate our sin from God because we cannot stand in front of God with sin. Like Amen. <laughs> I sort of messed it up, but yeah, because, <laughs> it gets, because it gets really slippery. Honestly, honestly, Bonnie, you had me at yeah. consider the coaster. I told you. I feel like that <laughs> that should be a t-shirt. <laughs> we should consider the yeah, coaster. Consider I've heard the coaster. A lot of sermons. That's great. <laughs> so that. First time player, first time champion. That makes Bonnie oh, a winner you. with two. You guys are one. Sonata's, Sonata's excited too. She's barking yeah. crazy because she loves your sermons as well. That's a fun game, isn't it? It is. Yeah. I really enjoy that one. It's a fun game built off of something so awful. Yeah, but right. what else can you do? <laughs> you you know, to. sometimes. Yeah. But that's this podcast. It's something great based off of something yeah. so awful. Yeah. <laughs> well. Yep. You know, sometimes beauty comes out of pain. Are we still playing the game? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sonata, settle. She she la- barks at laughing. Settle. That's a long story. All right. Well, that'll do it for us this week. Um, Bonnie, thank you so much for joining us thank this you. week. Uh, how this can people really find honor. what you have going in, going on on the interwebs or what kind of public work would you like to draw people to? You know, something that is kind of exciting for us, at least at Parkside Community Church, is on our lawn, we have a nativity display 
We put it up at the first week of July, just before July 4, actually, and to protest the immigration policy on the border. So we have Mary and Joseph in one chicken wire cage and baby Jesus in a manger in another chicken wire cage, separate from his parents. Ellen, did you post that on our Facebook? I, I thought I remember seeing a, a picture yes, of that. You did. We okay, did. we'll put the link yeah. to that in our show notes, the picture. But yeah, that's great. Cool. Yeah, that. so I'm, you know, my and my church is like super, they're just really proud to be a part of the public conversation around that issue. Nice. So we'll put links to your church cool. and all that information in there. Thank what you about for that. you? How can people follow you? Are you active on any social media platform that we can direct people towards? Um, probably just the church stuff. Okay. I've, I've, I have put, yeah, I've written things and put it on our Facebook page. Sounds good. So we will link to that in the show notes. Alan, how about you? What do people have going on or what do you have? Um, going on? I've recently started, uh, actually publishing some of the poetry that I write and I am going to upload it to my Instagram. So follow me at Rev Alan O'Brien. And as always, Facebook's the place if you want to get in touch with me. Yep. And we have all that information in the show notes. And for me, you can follow me on all the socials at Jeff Manildi and listen on the second and fourth Thursday of every month to my other podcast, Divine Cinema. That's at divinecinema.net. You can get all the information for that show as well. And uh, once again, Bonnie, thank you for coming. We are planning on having Bonnie back. We actually have a topic ready to go that we're going to be recording in the next few weeks. So we're looking forward to that. So uh, you may see Bonnie around a little bit more. Uh, we really appreciate uh, a third voice in our in our man booth or <laughs> I don't even know what you call it. We tried to be as, as least as little bro mergent as possible. That's right. That's the goal. We should make a shirt for that too. I mean, yeah. I feel like we've come up yeah. with these wonderful terms that we should start marketing better. Um, the anti bro mergent or just bro mergent with like a, like a, like a circle and a red line through it. Like <laughs> that'd be good. Anyway, <laughs> We'll do that in our meeting. Uh, as for Irenacast, don't forget to su subscribe to the show and never miss an episode. We're available on all major podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and many more. And while you're there, if your platform allows it, leave us a rating and, and or review. Uh, we're always looking for more and more ways to hear from you. You can also fill out our listener survey uh, at irenacast.com slash survey. The information you give us on that survey is always super helpful as we move forward and continue to evolve the show. That's irenacast.com slash slash survey so for this week i'm jeff i'm alan and i'm bonnie thanks for joining the conversation 